Well, good morning. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love for you to have one in your hands. Our ushers have lots there for you. Uh, just slide your hand up if you want to have a Bible in your hands. We want you to have God's Word so that you can check everything that we are saying against what He has said. We are a people about the Word of God and the Spirit of God. If you want to grab that Bible and open to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, we're going to be starting off our series this week and for many, many, many months to come in the book of Mark. So today is an exciting day, friends. It's exciting because it's the Lord's Day. I mean, every day, every new day is a great day. The Lord's Day is extra sweet every week as we gather together as God's people. It's an amazing privilege that we actually get to gather under the name of Christ, in the blood of Christ, for His fame and for His Glory. And so we welcome you here this morning. It is the Lord's day. So we have glorious news, and we're going to be learning about glorious news today in the Bible. The Lord has contained everything He wants for us to know in God's Word. It's everything, it's sufficient for life and godliness. And so we as a church approach the Word of God seriously, but with joy. We believe in bold preaching. It's one of our first pillars, one of our distinctives here in this church. We believe in exposing God's word to our hearts, applying it to our lives so that we can be transformed in further into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be doing that, jumping into the book of Mark together, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, taking everything in that God wants to teach us through his word. And so today is also exciting, but there's, there's lots of ministries starting today, like I said. Uh, we're, we're seeing men's ministry, women's ministry, small group ministry, marriage ministry, youth ministry. These aren't just programs for the sake of programs. These are intentional moves for us to be transforming into the image of Christ together. And so it's exciting to be gathering for that. And another exciting thing today is that today we're going to have our first, our very first, baptism as a new church. In fact, we're going to have two. And so we're excited about that. That means God is at work in this place. He is at work in our people. And we give him all the praise and the glory for that, and we pray that he will receive the glory for that today. And on top of that, we get to start a new book of the Bible. We're going to be diving into the Gospel of Mark. It's a book full of urgent, irresistible, awe-inspiring life-transforming good news, full of it. We get to hear about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the greatest news you could ever hear. And we get to crack that book open and start learning about him, walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And you're going to see our theme over the next year is going to be follow me, follow Christ. That's his call. You're going to see it through the book. He calls you to follow him as disciples in his footprints, learning from him, being changed into his likeness for his glory. So we're going to be in there for a while. We're going to witness the person, the proclamation, and the power, and the passion of Christ. We're going to start there today. We're going to learn about this Son of God. The theme of Mark is he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And like I said, it's irresistible. 
It's something that you hear, and, and by God's Spirit, you are transformed, and you believe it. And so let me ask you, do you want to be starting this journey with us? As we start off this fall into this, do you want to be starting this journey through God's Word together? Are you excited for it? Do you want to marvel at the Son of God? Do you want to join the disciples on the road behind Jesus? And do you want to respond to him when he calls you to follow him? There's lots wrapped up in following Christ, being a Christ follower, being a disciple. So let's start. We're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And we're really going to be just focusing on one verse today. I know that seems kind of crazy, but that's all we're starting with today. There's so much here in the first verse. But it starts like this. This is the gospel according to Mark. And in chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Lord, as we open your word, as we open your New Testament, we see that you are full of grace and mercy in this first sentence that you have given us your son. You have given us the gospel. You have given us Jesus, our Savior. You have given us Christ, the anointed one. Lord, we ask today that you would move upon our hearts by the power of your spirit. Show us exactly what you want us to learn. We pray that you would renew our minds this morning, transform us into the image of your son. And Lord, we pray as we approach this new book that we would respond to the call to follow Christ. First, that we would be saved by him. First, that we would repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation, the only way to intimate community with you. And Lord, beyond that, following is much more. God saves us to sanctify us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us. And so as we look at this book, teach us, grow us. We trust every word, and we believe them as coming directly from you. So work today, we ask in the name of King Jesus. Amen. So let's read that verse again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so here we go. We begin our journey into the text, and we're starting with only one verse. One verse that really sets the stage, sets the foundation for all that we're going to know. In fact, this verse is really a summary verse of the whole book. The whole book of Mark is summed up basically in this text. Before we begin to start pulling this verse apart and start applying it to our lives, we need to, have, we need to land the plane we're parachuting into the book of Mark. We really don't know where we are in the testimony of God's word, and so we need some context. When you're studying your Bible, context is king. Context is first. You have to understand things within the grammar, within the history, within the whole story of redemption history. And so we're coming into the gospel of Mark. We've got to be careful with looking at the words of God. Words apart from context will most often lead to confusion. And so we have to understand things within context, which then leads to understanding. And so with that context in mind, let's ask ourselves this question, who is Mark? 
Who is this Mark guy that, that, that this book is titled after? The Gospel According to Mark. And why is this book named after him? How about who was this book written to, and why did he write it? These are all questions you need to ask the text, and you need to, you need to study to understand it. And so let's start with who Mark is. Mark's fuller name was John Mark. And although this book is named after him, this book is not about him. He was the the writer of this book, inspired by the Holy Spirit as God chose to write his word to us. So this book is not about him. And surprisingly, Mark himself was not an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Other Gospels like John and and Matthew, they are eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They were disciples. And Luke himself, he penned Luke as a report. He wasn't an eyewitness either. but, But Mark himself, he was not a direct disciple of Jesus Christ. He was not also an apostle. And so then you may be asking, well, then, then why is this book written? Why is this book considered Scripture? Well, Mark was closely associated with the apostles. In fact, he was very closely associated with one apostle in particular. You know, in the early church in, in Jerusalem, Mark's uh, mother's home was often used by the disciples with the first century church. They were always hanging out at her home, using it for ministry. And Mark would have been a very young man at that time. And so you would see him rubbing shoulders with the apostles. And so they would have naturally discipled him and and started him in his ministry. In fact, Mark even traveled on the first missionary journey with Paul and Mark's cousin Barnabas. Now, if you know that story, you'll also remember that there was a bit of a scuffle between Paul and Mark and Barnabas, so much so that Mark and Barnabas had to part ways with Paul for the second missionary journey. But if you study further, you see that that relationship was reconciled and Mark was considered worthy as a minister of the gospel. So the apostle that Mark was closest to was not Paul. After he left Paul, Mark connected with uh, the apostle Peter in Jerusalem, and he became his close confidant and his partner in the ministry. In fact, he was so close to Peter that many of the early church fathers, some of these guys like Justin Martyr in Irenaeus or Irenaeus or Origen in Clement of Alexandria, they all regarded Mark's gospel as memoirs of Peter. So in many ways, you can also look at Mark's gospel as Peter's gospel. Mark was writing what Peter told him and what Peter preached. He contained it in a book. So he was very close to Peter. Now, a few other things that we need to be mentioned as, uh, as we engage this gospel. Just some quick facts. Uh, this was written most likely in the late 50s, possibly even the early 60s A.D., while Mark was in Italy with the apostle Peter. Uh, it's the shortest of all the Gospels. Anybody say amen to that, right? It's highly regarded to be the first Gospel that was written. The other two synoptic Gospels all build off of this one. Uh, it was also written to a non-Jewish audience in, in Rome. So, so you would see it's not overloaded with Jewish history or customs or like the other Gospels, the genealogies of Jesus. They're, they're not to be found here. Uh, Mark also has fewer parables than Matthew and Luke. 
But Mark contains the most miracles. And one final thing you need to notice about Mark is that it is fast-paced. It is punchy. It paints a clear picture. It's succinct. It's short. My old pastor would say, if you were to compare Mark to a newspaper, now he's an American, so he would say it would be like USA Today compared to the New York Times. It's, it's the shorter version. It's the punchy version. I don't know how you would compare that in Canada here. It'd probably be the sun compared to the herald, right, here in, here in the city. So it moves quickly from one story to another. He spares lengthy details. He hits the mountain peaks of the gospel. And he loves the word immediately or the word at once. In fact, he uses immediately or at once over 42 times in this 16 chapters. In fact, when you look at the the uses of the word immediately, out of all the New Testament, Mark uses half of all of those uh, quotations of immediately. He loves that word because it's an urgent word. And the message that he has is urgent. He's not lost in the details. He's not explaining lengthy sections of Jewish customs. He's not focused on those genealogies. He's all about the action, the action of Jesus Christ. And he's interested in keeping the main thing the main thing, and that main thing is an urgent thing. The message of Jesus Christ is the most urgent message in all of the universe. It's the truth. It's the gospel. And this is going to be Mark's motive throughout the whole book, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is worth following, devoting your whole life. And so with a little of that context in your back pocket, let's return to that first verse, and we're going to see three proofs, three proofs that Jesus must be followed immediately. And the first proof is found by looking at his proclamation. Looking at his proclamation. The first thing you need to take note of in this first verse is that Mark sets everything off by declaring, he says, the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel. The beginning of Mark's gospel is abrupt. It is immediate. It is the gospel itself. It is the good news. And this is new news. It's news that finally has come. It's here. It's vital. It's urgent. It's the gospel. The beginning of the gospel. So this word gospel, it's an extremely important word. It's a word that we use all the time in the church, right? We use that word all the time. Sometimes we don't think about what that word means. We we, we love the gospel, we teach the gospel, we share the gospel, we live the gospel. We are gospel-centered. It's a very churchy kind of a, of a word right now. And it's something that we sometimes take for granted. But back in the day, when this was written, this word would have been so much more significant. It held much more meaning. The Greek word euangelion, good news. It means glad news. It means joyful tidings. This was a word used by both the Jews and the Gentiles. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, good news comes from the Hebrew word basar. 
which was quite often used to speak of God's salvation as good news that needs to be declared. And we see that throughout the Old Testament in Isaiah 52, 7. It says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, the gospel. It was a, de- it was a declaration of the arrival of good news, that God's salvation is here, and it is to be declared from the mountaintops. Now, this word was also used in the secular world. Good news was used for the arrival of royalty, of kings, the arrival of a kingdom. For example, when Augustus Caesar was born, it was declared that he was going to be a godlike savior that he was going to bring peace. Look at this ancient inscription from the Roman Empire. And this was said about Augustus. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god, Augustus, was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. So we see Caesar's birth as being declared as providential, regarded as a savior, that he would bring peace He would bring hope. And they said about his birthday, it was the beginning of good news. Same word, the gospel. So this would have meant so much more to the hearers of this text. And this is exactly how Mark begins, the beginning of the gospel. And so even though we sometimes quickly read over statements like that, looking at the history, looking at the context teaches us that this is a punchy statement right out of the gate. The hearers, both Jews and Greeks, would have known that this statement is confronting an ideology. It would have been controversial. It would have been bold. It would have been countercultural. And as Mark's audience was mainly the Romans, this would have been a huge statement. Mark is declaring here that Caesar is not God. The beginning of the gospel is Jesus Christ. He is the reason for good news. He is the reason for joyful tidings. Not Caesar. And so the statement is bold. It's the kind of statement that would bring persecution. It's the kind of statement that would bring death. And it's the kind of statement that we get to declare even today. It's a timeless message. The gospel is timeless. Our hope and our peace and our salvation is not found in worldly leaders. It's not found in Caesar. It's not found in Muhammad. It's not found in Buddha. It's not found in the Pope. It's not found in an idol. It's found in Jesus Christ alone. It's not found in science either. It's not found in ourselves. It's Jesus Christ alone. And so friends, the beginning of the good news is Jesus Christ and Him 
alone. According to Mark, this is the everlasting. This is the greatest. This is the most compelling. This is the most irresistible, irrefutable proclamation that could ever be declared. And this is the first proof that calls your heart to believe and to follow Jesus immediately. It's urgent. It's earth-shattering. It's life-transforming. It's eternity-altering. It's your only hope. It's the greatest good news that you could ever hear. So let me ask you this. Is, is this the greatest news to you right now? Is this the truth that you hold on to? Is this the most important thing in your mind as you go about your week and your day, as you live with your family, in your marriages, at your workplace, in your homes? Is the gospel at the center or is it lost in the fog of this world or the fog of the stress and anxiety of whatever you're dealing with or the fog and the stress of sin? Is it on the lower shelf? Is it being pushed out because of the delights and desires of this place, this world? Friends, Mark begins his gospel with the gospel. Bold urgency showing you and me that we need the gospel. We need the good news. Every day, we need the good news. And so we're going to see this throughout this whole book. As we partake in this journey together through the gospel of Mark, we're going to witness over and over again that this is not about us. This is about him. This is about Jesus, the Christ. The gospel is about him. It's all about Jesus, and Jesus himself is all about the gospel. Just looking at Mark, looking through Mark, we can see how Christ is all about the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming what? He was proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 8, 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. In Mark 13, 10, marching orders for us, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So the gospel is all about Jesus, and Jesus is all about the gospel. And so how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this first statement? I love Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Are you believing in the gospel? Have you trusted in Christ for your salvation? Are you trusting in him alone? So we need to look to his proclamation, and we're going to see so much with Jesus as he teaches, Jesus as he heals. All of these things point to eternal healing in Jesus Christ, the gospel on full display. And so be watching for that as we walk through. Be watching for the gospel being proclaimed by him. And secondly, we need to look at another proof here in this first verse. Look at the proof of his person. Look at the name Jesus. So Mark says that the beginning of the gospel is Jesus. But who is this Jesus? 
So let's just take a few minutes, and we're just going to look at the name of Jesus. You know, kind of like the gospel, we take Jesus' name also for granted. We look at Jesus Christ, and, and uh, Christ is not his last name. Jesus is his name. Sometimes we really don't think a lot about it. His name, though, is extremely significant. It tells us a lot about who he is. This name comes from the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, which means in the Hebrew, God is salvation. It's the personal name that the angel proclaimed to, to Joseph at Jesus' birth in Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. You see, who he is is wrapped up in his name, in his earthly name. It also harkens back to Joshua from the Old Testament, the one who took over for Moses. As, as Moses died on Mount Nebo and he was leading the people, the, the baton was passed to, jo, to Joshua. And Joshua brought the people into the land across the Jordan. God is salvation brought his people to the land. So the, the name means a lot. The promise of salvation is wrapped up in the name of Jesus Christ. So it is a human name, but it's a personal name, and it's a name that has massive implications. Now I took a look at uh, the 50 most popular names for naming your baby, and uh, Jesus is not on the list. Not a lot of people are naming their children Jesus. But at the time of Jesus' life, in the early church, the name Jesus was very common. It was a very common name. And so the, for the first century here of this book, this name wouldn't have seemed as significant as maybe what we think today. And we think of the name Jesus, we think of God, right? But for them, it's like, I have six cousins named Jesus and two brothers, right? Well, Mark shares with us further this big deal that, that it is more than a name, and he attaches the Christ to his name, Jesus the Christ. And again, like I said, Christ is not his last name. It's not like Mullen or Weeb or Carlson or Duguid. It's a title. It comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means anointed one. The anointed one. This was used in the Old Testament for the naming of kings. When you think of David, he was the anointed. These were leaders who were especially empowered by the Holy Spirit to lead God's people. It was used in the prophecies of Daniel for, for the coming final promised Messiah. It's also used in Isaiah for the, for the promised suffering servant. If we look at Isaiah 61.1, we see the Lord speaking here through Isaiah saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is all prophecy fulfilled in the man, the God-man of Jesus Christ. He is the anointed one. 
He is the long-awaited, promised, anointed Savior who would bring good news to the poor, to you and me. We are poor in spirit. We need him. He brings the gospel. He brings the glad tidings of hope and peace when there is sin and wrath being stored up against us because of our sin. He is the one that, he's the only one that can free you from your sin. And so this Jesus, according to Mark, as Mark, again, is recording the teachings of Peter and the eyewitness of Peter, this Jesus is the man whom salvation has finally come. He is the anointed, promised Savior, spoken and prophesied about throughout all of Scripture. He's the Christ. He's the answer. He's the answer that your heart has been waiting for. Everybody in this world is a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus came at the perfect time, at the right place, to save sinners from their sin. Ever since the garden, remember the story of the garden, the first two people that existed in this universe. They were living in the garden with God. There was no sin. There was no separation. They were at peace with God. They had everything they needed. But they had one rule. They were not to eat of the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden. God said, Genesis 3.3, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. One rule. But as the human heart goes, they disobeyed God. They, they wanted to go their own way. They were tempted, and they partook, and they ate, and they sinned. And the curse of sin came into the world. The curse of death came into the world. But the beauty amidst this sorrow and this sin is a promise. A promise of grace. That even though they sinned against God, there would be one coming who could save them from their sins. Genesis 3.15. We see this. One coming who would bruise the head of Satan. And that is Jesus Christ being foretold right after the first sin in the garden. One who would bruise the head of Satan. This is a death blow. He would destroy Satan. He's going to destroy sin and death promised in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is this promised anointed Messiah. And he came to earth 2,000 years ago. And in his life and in his death and in his resurrection from the dead, he defeated sin and he defeated death and he gave the death blow to Satan. His blood was poured out as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. This is the promise. There's a lot of blood in the Old Testament. All that blood of lambs and goats, it all points to Jesus Christ. Fulfilled in one anointed man. He is the Christ. Are you looking for him? Are you looking to him as the Christ? Are you examining his person? Do you actually believe that he is the Messiah? That's the greatest question you can ask yourself and come to an understanding of. Is Jesus Christ the Messiah? 
Is he the Savior? Is he the one that paid the price for my sin? And that is the truth that he is. The first half of Mark's gospel is going to show us this perfect, sinless life that Jesus lived. And the last half is going to show us his passionate death for sinners, for the glory of God. I'm excited to go through that with you. Jesus had to suffer. It was the plan from the very beginning, his death to conquer death. God's wrath poured out on, not us, on his son. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Is that what you're banking your eternity on right now? Not on your own merit, not on your own works, not on your own goodness, but on what he has done, the life that he lived, the death that he died. Are you banking your eternity on that? You know, the, the disciples themselves struggled to believe. They struggled to believe as well. They asked the Lord to, to help them with their unbelief. So they struggled to believe this as well. Are you struggling to believe in this good news? Do you see the world as more attractive, as more enticing? There is nothing greater than this. This is the best news. Let's have a look at the disciples and Jesus here in Mark 8, verses 27 to 33. I have it up there, so you don't have to turn. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We see Peter here declaring who Jesus, he is the Christ. And you go on to verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of God. Of man, Just look at how the disciples struggled to believe Jesus Christ in the full gospel. So if you're struggling today, know this, that the struggle is common, but the struggle can be overcome. Open up God's word, ask for the Lord's spirit to help you to understand it, that he would grant you faith. So I can't wait to dive into that text in the days to come. But notice that believing Jesus can be hard, it can be a struggle. He is the Christ. He is the Christ. He is the promised Savior. He is the promised Messiah of your soul. Are you believing this good news? And the Gospel of Mark is going to say, follow me, follow Jesus. Believe it, repent from your sin, trust it. It is fully true. This is the testimony of Mark, and it's the testimony of the whole Bible. And so we need to look at this test of proclamation, this proof. So looking at the proof of his promise and his proclamation, and thirdly, we need to look at a final proof. You need to look at the proof of his power. Look at the proof of his power. We see this attached 
declaration, title, he is the Son of God. Mark says he is the Son of God. So on top of the name Jesus, Joshua, God saves. And on top of this qualifier that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, Mark adds that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the most controversial title that he has. This is the title that brings death. Jesus is the Son of God. So as the name Jesus speaks of his human nature, the title Son of God speaks of his divine nature. This man who comes from the dusty streets of Nazareth, this son of a carpenter, he is not only a man, but he is God. 100% God, 100% man, and full of glory and authority and power. We're going to see this on full display all through the Gospel of Mark as he has the authority and power over all of his creation. We're going to get a front row seat witnessing the power and the authority of Jesus over everything. We're going to see his authority over sickness. He's going to perform miracle after miracle, healing sick people from disease, raising the dead from death. In chapter 2, we're going to see him fully heal a paralyzed man because he is the Son of God with authority. That's Mark chapter 2, verse 10 to 12. And it says there, it says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, there's that word again, picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God. And they said this, they said, we never saw anything like this. We're going to witness his power and authority over the spiritual realm as he casts out demons and cleanses people from the torment of sin and evil. And we're going to join those disciples as they watch all of this. Mark 1.27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. He has all authority. We're going to see his power and authority over religion. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. We're going to see his power and authority over nature. Remember, Jesus walks on water. A little professor of mine said, the most natural thing for creation to do is to obey the Creator. Some of us struggle. How could Jesus walk on water? That is the most natural thing for water to do is to obey its creator, to hold him up. And we're going to see his power and authority over his own people. As he calls his disciples to follow him. Mark 1, verses 16 to 20. Jesus calls his first disciples. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, immediately. They left their lives, they left their business, and they followed Jesus Christ. He was worthy of their whole life's devotion. So Jesus is the Son of God who has all authority and power. We're going to see this all over 
this book. But let me ask you today, has he called you? Has he called you to follow him? Is he your Lord? Are you falling under his authority? Have you turned from your sin and trusted him and, and said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go? Are you walking with him? Friends, if you're not following Jesus, you are rejecting Jesus. You are rejecting the greatest message that you could ever understand. So Jesus is calling us, calling us today. This, this book says that we, are, we need to believe he is the Christ he is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He is the gospel. So I pray that you are excited to come with us on this journey. And in this first verse, we see that we need to be examining. We need to be looking again at his proclamation, looking at his person, looking at his power. And we are going to see so much more in the book of Mark. But the book of Mark calls you to follow Christ. Are you following him?